John chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as a father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock and with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Last week, we considered how Jesus is the door to the sheepfold. It's through him that we enter into eternal life. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the only, the exclusive source of life and salvation. And we ended on verse 10 in which Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Those thieves he spoke of were the unfaithful shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees and scribes. These men who were entrusted by God with the care of his flock persecuted those that had faith in the Messiah. In chapter 9, the false shepherds rebuked and excommunicated the formerly blind man whom Christ healed. Why did they do that? Because the blind man who now could see honored Christ as Messiah. These false shepherds weren't concerned with the health of the sheep or the truth of the gospel. Therefore, they led the sheep to dry and barren pasture. And that's why Jesus said, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So pasture is food, sustenance, it's life. They will find life and they'll have it in abundance. But how does that life come to us? How do we get the abundant life? It comes by death, bloodshed, and sacrifice. Look at verse 11 again. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Some years ago, I was at a pastor's breakfast, and uh, they're mostly miserable events. Um, Usually, all the time spent talking about golf or problems with the building. And if you're lucky, perhaps, you know, their, their preaching schedule would be about as spiritual as it gets. It it rarely gets very deep or helpful. It's basically a lame clergy networking meeting with mediocre coffee and bagels. That was my experience at Anaheim. However, there was one time when it was quite different. A hip-looking older pastor showed up that was very interested in talking about doctrine. If you guys remember Brian McLaren, he was a flash in the pan back in the 2000s. He wrote a book called A New kind of Christianity, and its main character's name was actually Neo. Anyhow, he ended up being a heretic, 
But he would always, you know, uh, do this sort of Steve Jobs wannabe thing with the black turtleneck and, and um, you know, cool-looking glasses, whatever. And this guy looked a lot like an older Brian McLaren. So him being there made it, uh, made it more interesting. But sadly, the more he talked, the more it became that he clearly was a theological liberal. He kept arguing that the gospel should be centered on the incarnation of Christ. Kept bringing it up over and over again. He said that Christ coming in the flesh is a central event in history. And now at first, that doesn't sound very bad. After all, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be Emmanuel or God with us. And he kept arguing this point by saying that Christ is our great example. His incarnation shows us how we ought to walk. And again, that doesn't sound bad at all either. In 1 John, it says we ought to walk how Jesus walked. But here's the problem. He didn't want to talk about the cross. He didn't want to talk about how Jesus shed his blood, suffered, and died. See, theological liberals underestimate our sinfulness and God's holiness. They think that we, in our own power, can follow Jesus' example and that God, who demands perfect obedience, will accept our best efforts as satisfactory. And they're wrong. And the cross shows that. Mankind is so rotten to the core, so black-hearted and depraved, that Christ had to die on the cross for us. Yes, Jesus is God with us. He is God the Son, reconciling us back to God the Father through his perfect work on Calvary. Praise the Father that he sent Emmanuel to die for us. Listen to 1 Peter, this is from our scripture reading this morning. Know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Redeem means bought. We are delivered, bought back from our futile way of life by the blood of Christ. That is why the cross is central, not the incarnation. That is why 1 Corinthians 2, or why in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, For I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It isn't that the cross is the only thing that matters. That's how people will wrongly interpret that. You should only talk about the cross. 66 books for a reason. What it means is without the cross, nothing else matters. That's what it means. It's a central doctrine. We can only follow the example of the incarnated Christ because we have been delivered from our sinful ways by his death on the cross. 1 Corinthians um, 6.20 says, uh, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So from redemption flows obedience, not the opposite way around. It is through the cross that the devil, sin, and death were conquered. That's what liberates us. It's the very source of our life. A good shepherd stands when others flee and defends his flock. Christ went so far to lay down his life to save us. That is why we'll never stop talking or singing about the cross. That's why it'll come up every week and in most conversations if you're a faithful Christian. 
The cross is central and it must be kept that way. It is the only way to abundant life. Amen? Amen. Now in verses 12 and 13, Jesus contrasts himself with hirelings. Some men will hire out men to shepherd their flocks. Uh, These men aren't thieves or robbers. They have a legitimate relationship to the sheep. In the previous passage, you know, people climb over the wall of the sheepfold to steal the sheep. But in this case, they've actually been hired to take care of them. And it's their job to feed and care for the sheep. And they do so as long as they're in no real danger. Hired men will feed the sheep. They will care for them. But the moment wolves come on the scene, the hirelings flee. They're ultimately there for a paycheck and not uh, out of true concern for the sheep. And the ministry is full of men like this. Men that will teach truth and care for the sheep as long as it doesn't truly cost them anything. These are bad shepherds. We think the only thing that disqualifies a man from office is bad doctrine, bad motives, and bad practice. What else could there be, right? But a lack of courage disqualifies a man from leadership. And that's what we're lacking in the Reformed Church. Shepherds cannot be cowards. Cowards, says Revelation, go to hell. It is a sin to be a coward, especially in leadership. Fathers, you can't be cowards. Business leaders, you can't be cowards. Shepherds especially can't be. Listen to Acts 20. Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Calvin says, For how base and shameful is our indolence if our life is more dear to us than the salvation of the church, which Christ preferred to his own life. That's one thing that I kept thinking about as I read this passage. What's more valuable, sheep or people? People, right? Right, so if, if you're guarding sheep and wolves come after you, what would you do? Well, I would run if I didn't have a gun or something. I wouldn't stay. I can get more sheep. They're sheep. I bear the image of God. I can get more sheep. And I was thinking about that, and that just shows how crazy the substitutionary death of Christ is. The difference between Christ and, the, and us, between God and man. That God would give his life for little us. That's amazing, right? Now, pastors need to be willing to give their lives for the church. Anything less makes them a hireling. That's why not many should be teachers. I was discipled by Pastor Tim Bailey, and he had a habit of keeping a vacuum cleaner in the corner of his office. And once an elder came into his office at a different church than his current one and began to pressure him not to preach certain section, sections of God's word. Yeah, talk about this stuff. Not that stuff. 
People don't like it. It gets, uh, makes them uncomfortable. And God forbid you should be uncomfortable in church. That's what we live to do is make you uncomfortable. Um, disturb the comfortable, comfort the disturbed. So anyway, it was either explicitly stated or strongly implied, I don't remember, that if he didn't go along with the, the elder's request, that he would soon be out of job. He would be fired. So Tim, being Tim, pointed at the vacuum cleaner and explained that he once made his living as a janitor and would go back to it before he ever withheld the word of God from God's people. He would not be a hired man. If you can be bought, you will sell out. Remember what Jesus said to Peter after the resurrection. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And then he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Again, Calvin says, in short, as it belongs exclusively to Christ to procure life for us by his death and to fulfill all that is contained in the gospel, so it is the universal duty of all pastors or shepherds to defend the doctrine which they proclaim even at the expense of their life and to seal the doctrine of the gospel with their blood to show that it is not in vain that they teach that Christ has procured salvation for themselves and for others. Brethren, pray for your elders. Pray for the elders in in the church universal, the ones even outside this church and this presbytery. Pray that they would be bold. There is more and more pressure to avoid certain sections of scripture. And why is it, is it, is it coincidence those are the very sections of scripture that our culture needs to hear? No. So pray that they be bold. Remember what happened when John and Peter were thrown in jail and they got out? The first thing that they did was pray that they would be bold to continue to preach the word of God. We are weak. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the only perfect shepherd. Every other shepherd's an under-shepherd and has the same temptations you do. And that's why they need to be held up in prayer. Now, in verse 14 and 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And J.C. Ryle, he explains this wonderful. He writes, like a good shepherd, Christ knows all his believing people, their names, their families, their dwelling places, their circumstances, their private history, their experience, their trials. With all these things, Jesus is perfectly acquainted. There is not a thing about the least and lowest of them with which he is not familiar. The children of this world may not know Christians and may count their lives folly, but the good shepherd knows them thoroughly and wonderful to say, though he knows them, does not despise them. If we knew each other's hearts, none of us would be friends. 
That's how wicked your thoughts are. People say, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm about. It's a good thing. God does so. And yet he loves you. Think of the sins you commit in your mind, let alone the ones you do with your appendages. Christ knows all of them. And he loves us. He understands. He's a great high priest. He says, even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Not only does Christ know us, but he knows the Father. In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul explains, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See how all these things tie together? There's themes that repeat in Scripture. So Christ gives himself as a ransom. That's redemption again. And becomes the mediator between us and the Father. Again, it's through the sacrifice of Christ that we are brought into a right relationship with God the Father. Through Christ. Also here, Christ is reminding us that he knows us as the Father knows him. The Father will not forget Christ just the same. Christ will not forget us. So Jesus employs all the power which he has received from the Father for our protection So he wishes that we should be obedient and devoted to him as he is wholly devoted to his father and refers everything to him. He's comforting us. Jesus will not leave nor forsake you. The hired man runs off. Jesus stood. He'll protect you. He knows you. He's been vested with power from the father. May that move you to greater devotion, to trusting him. May it comfort you. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, this verse has been greatly abused. People have gone some really strange directions with this. So he says, I have other sheep. Well, um, for example, some people have claimed that this meant that Christ went out into the cosmos to preach the gospel to all the aliens out there. You know what we find the further we go into outer space? Nada. Nothing. It's pretty to look at, but it basically destroys life. Like anywhere you go, you're trying to figure out how to live on Mars. and It's just not been very easy because Mars is not a good place to live. And so the only reason people think the cosmos is full of intelligent life is because they're evolutionists. And then they say, based on the odds, there should be this many advanced civilizations. And therefore, how would they get saved? Well, Christ would have to go to them. And I was reading an article that came out two weeks ago by a non-Christian source that was saying it's very likely that only Earth, or that we're the most um, advanced intelligence. So they're coming around slowly to what seems to be, I mean, I know we're not super intelligent, but you know what I mean. Um, Nonetheless, there are people that say things like that, that that's what this is talking about. But a little closer to home, America has created two major um, religions, Jehovah Witnesses and the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. Well, a big part of the Mormon of the Mormon religion is this idea that there were um, 
it's crazy because it's false. But basically that God worked in a bunch of people over here on the American continent. And Jesus actually came over here and preached to them. And, uh, and that's how Joseph Smith dug up these tablets and found out this secret history because Jesus had came over here. And he cites that this verse directly to justify that idea. But that's not what this verse is talking about at all. And if you just, here's the thing, never, ever read a single Bible verse. Never. Don't do it. Read a chapter. Read a paragraph. Read it in context. This is a book called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. And he's like, here's these 20 things to do to be able to interpret the Bible. So after you read that book, a normal person feels like there's no way I could understand the Bible without a master's degree, right? Well, here's the one thing you need to do is just never read a single verse. Realize that, uh, that the sentence is in context of the paragraph and paragraph in context of the book and the book in context of the Testament and all of it in context of the whole. So don't read a single verse or you'll become a heretic like Joseph Smith. And uh, that's not recommended at all. Um, what's he talking about? Well, the sheep of this fold, he's speaking of Israel. That's what he's been talking about the whole time. That the Pharisees have not been good shepherds over Israel. That's the sheepfold that he has in mind. Those that aren't of the fold, they're the Gentiles that are spread out over the globe. They will hear his voice in the gospel preached by Christ's under shepherds, right? Those are elders that go out. We call them missionaries sometimes. They go out and preach the gospel. People only come to know God through the preaching of the gospel. So if the gospel doesn't matter, why do we send out missionaries? Because it does matter. It's what God works through. And so God has sent out missionaries into his world And we see this uh, in the book of Acts. It basically tracks Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Supposedly, Thomas got all the way down to India. There's some pretty good evidence. It's amazing. And the gospel is going out and God's pulling the Gentiles in. And that's kind of how you can break down Acts is the initial ministry just to the Jews. And then, uh, what's it, like nine on, it, it really is focusing on the ministry to the Gentiles. And then the church has largely become a Gentile church, yet there is a promise someday the Lord will start calling ethnic Israel back to himself. But what he has in mind here uh, is the Gentiles are going to be brought in and weaved together into one body, Jews and Gentiles. Now, remember the Tower of Babel way back in uh, uh, Genesis 11? There, mankind builds this big old tower. And they, they're all unified. They have one language, one purpose. And their purpose is wicked. It's to make their name great. So they're trying to build this big tower to make themselves equal with God. And God is not happy with that. So God divides them by confusing their speech. And which in turn leads to the creation of many nations. We see that in Genesis 10. Now in Christ. We have that very thing reversed. Listen to this. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 tells us, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. 
They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are, or excuse me, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking the mighty deeds of God. On the day of Pentecost, Babel was reversed. At Babel, man wanted to unite around their name, and that led to a scattering and a lack of unity. In Christ, we are united around God's name with a single purpose. One family, God is bringing all these nations together. We read in Revelation that every tongue and tribe will be together in, in one body, the church. That's why we believe in the, the Catholic Church, little c, the universal church. All believers uh, throughout all time weave together into a single body. That's why we would never, um, that's why we're the Presbyterian Church in America, not of America. And the distinction matters. It's because uh, we don't want to, to sound like we're the only church of America. We don't believe that. We believe in the Catholic nature of the church. So Christ is uniting all the elect from every nation into a single body of the church. One flock with one shepherd. We cannot be divided by secondary things like language, culture, skin pigmentation. Right? You know, race isn't a thing, like a biological thing. It's just a sociological construct. And it, and it, has, it matters in so much that sociology matters and constructs matter. But it's not like real Humans uh, come in two variety, male, female. And now we want to define the church by the color of our skin or the type of hair we have. Sounds a lot like Hitler to me. Um, take that personal for my ethnic reasons. But uh, we can't allow that to happen in the church. We have to unite around the truth, around Christ. And here's what matters most. Are you part of... Of the one flock under the good shepherd? If so, you're my brother. If so, we belong to the same family. We're in the same church. We worship the same God. That's where unity has to start. America has lost its mind. Now, in verse 17 through 18, we, uh, we get these powerful verses. I want to read them again. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is all often depicted as a skinny, weak man with flowing blonde locks of hair. Right? If you see a picture of Jesus, right, he's like, a, like Kenny Loggins that hasn't ate in a couple days. A real skinny, weak guy. Kenny Loggins was a singer in the 80s. I'm going to have to update that with someone new. Um, nonetheless, that image, a false image, is instructive on how many people think of Christ. They think of him as weak. But Christ wasn't weak. His arm wasn't twisted by the Father or any earthly power. He and the Father are one. He set out on a mission and did so freely, and the Father loves him for it. 
Again, Ryle puts it so well. We must never suppose for a moment that our Lord had no power to prevent his sufferings and that he was delivered up to his enemies and crucified because he could not help it. Nothing could be further from the truth than such an idea. The treachery of Judas, the armed band of priest servants, the enmity of scribes and Pharisees, the injustice of Pontius Pilate, the crude hands of Roman soldiers, the scourge, the nail, and the spear. All these could not have harmed a hair on our Lord's head unless he had allowed them. Well might he say those remarkable words. Do you think that I cannot pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? Christ came for his flock. He laid down his life and took it again. He rose from the grave victorious over death. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming again. Again. Matthew 25 tells us, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And it's powerful. A day of reckoning is coming. The tares will be moved, removed from the wheat, and the goats will be removed from the sheep. There are goats in every congregation. This might be here for you today. You think you're a Christian? Do you fear God? Do you hate sin? Are you hopeless apart from Christ? Do you call out to him? Save me, Jesus. Redeem me, Jesus. Do you come to the Father because you have confidence through Christ and Christ alone? Well then, brethren, you're a sheep. That's good. But that's not true of you. If you're confident in the very idea that, that if I say something like man's rotten to the core, if that offends you, be warned. You do not know yourself. You do not know your identity. You are a goat. Repent. Repent. A day is coming. Those who have Jesus as a good shepherd will find pasture, abundant life, but the goats will be cast into everlasting darkness. Don't be a goat. Believe the gospel. Hear the shepherd's voice as he speaks through his appointed pastors. Follow their teaching as they lead you through the dark valley into eternal life. You ever notice that? Where does the dark valley come? In uh, the, the uh, death valley in Psalm 23, it's right in the middle. It's not at the end. It's not speaking of death. It's, we're passing through it. God leads us through it. And he leads us through it through under shepherds, elders. That's why Jesus is so upset with the Pharisees. That's why he's calling them out. It is good to have Jesus as your shepherd. He will comfort you when you're weighed down. He will pull you back when you go astray. So just renew yourself this very day. Call out to him, praise him, thank him, and submit to those he's put over you and do it with a happy heart. Let's pray.